This podcast is made possible through donations from listeners like you and our partners at Tallman Equipment. They pride themselves on equipping their customers with the tools they need to get the job done right. They are dedicated to set the standard for quality, convenience, and reliability. At Tallman, your opinion is important to them. Rate and review any product or tool you've used on their new website at tallmanequipment.com. Line 11 Clothing Company, making apparel for their first responders with a positive message to patriots that you can be proud of. A proceed of the cost goes to helping our foundation ignite the fire for father engagement. Give them a follow at Line11Clothing on Instagram. You could also find them or email them at Line11Clothing at Yahoo.com. And last but not least, Monzingo Knives. Each knife is created with craftsmanship that only a tradesman could provide. Find them on Instagram at Monzingo Knives and get your American-made Monzingo knife today. Welcome to the Show Up Dad podcast. This is a podcast for hardworking fathers. At the Show Up Dad, we recognize that fathers providing for their children is certainly important. But when men truly understand their unique role and gain the knowledge and skills to be great fathers, they can transform and impact future generations. Our guest today is none other than Michael J. Loya. Michael is a journeyman lineman working in California. He has been married for 23 years. He has four kids with the oldest being 26 and the youngest being five. Welcome to the show, Dad, brother. Thank you, sir. Good morning. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome to have you on here, Mike. Um, can I have you give our listeners a brief history of your family of origin, your father, your mother, and growing up and stuff like that? Yeah, sure. So um, I grew up in West Covina. My, my dad and my mom met in high school at, at uh, Western High School in Cyprus. Mm-hmm. I'm the oldest of – we have three boys. I have two younger brothers. Um, our family – when we, growing up, it was all about, you know, camping, going to Yosemite, tents. You know, we didn't have a lot of money, so it was a lot of camping, mm-hmm. a lot of tents, a lot of Coleman stoves and Coleman heaters, and uh, dirt bikes. You know, my dad was into dirt bikes, and so we were out at, uh, you know, the Dry Lake or out in Mojave or whatever, riding, riding dirt bikes as a kid. That's all I remember, dirt bikes, sports, and camping. Yeah, that's a good uh, good childhood. I mean, <laughs> I remember some of it my was, fondest yeah. memories were going to Yosemite as well. I mean, such an awesome place. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, that that's awesome, bro. I'm. It's good to hear that you know you're as rambunctious as I was. You know what I mean? How was that relationship yeah. with your father? If you can share with us. So, my uh, my relationship, my dad was, he was hardcore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was always, uh, there was no sleeping in on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, it was always a project, whether we were pouring concrete, redoing the driveway, rebuilding the fence, pulling weeds, you know, mowing the lawn. I always had, he always, I don't know, he always had me doing something. You know, if I wasn't playing sports, I was, we were doing a project around the house. Mm-hmm. So it was, he was, he was hard. He was, um, very strict. You know, traditional Mexican dad, so mm-hmm. he was, you know, he was on top of me. He had his thumb on me all the time. Mm-hmm. And how did that affect you, do you think, in your life later on? Um, I don't know. I might have rebelled a little bit, you know. Um, my later years and my later teen years, I might have rebelled just a little bit. But, you know, I, 
it was sports for me. It was baseball, you know, junior all American footballs. And, and he was, he wanted, he wanted to be a part of that. So, you know, he would either coach, he didn't know much about baseball, but he, he would coach just so he could be a part of there, a part of that, you know, it was good. It was, you know, he was a good guy. He was just, he was just hard. Like he was just very strict. He had just, his rules were, this is, this is what's going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. this is how it's going to be. And he wasn't afraid. I got spanked when I was a kid. I got spanked with a belt. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we all did growing up. And it was, I think he just taught, you know, he instilled that, that work ethic. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have, you don't have time to just be lazy. I, I think that's the, that's the good word is lazy. He wasn't, he was not lazy. Mm-hmm. And I think I got that from him. Now, looking back, Mike, um, just hearing your story, I mean, it, it resonates with me tremendously. Um, same, same exact thing in my life. Um, my dad was hardcore. Oh, dad. We, used, we used to call him the machine, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I think for me, sports was kind of a, a way to escape his iron rule for lack of better <clears throat> words. Um, do you feel yeah. that that was kind of your escape as well? Just to, to find some sort of normalcy and balance? A hundred percent. So, here, here's, I think I took to baseball um, more than any other sport because my dad didn't know baseball. Mm. And even though he was my coach and he would always be asked by, you know, the, the other coaching staff just to be a part of the coaching staff so I could be on the team mm-hmm. so that I didn't have to go through the draft. But I think, I think I enjoyed that because it was the one time where I could tell him what to do. If that mm. makes sense. It was the one time, you know, that he didn't know much about baseball, the, the fundamentals of baseball, the, you know, what everybody's supposed to do on every play. And, and I kind of had that on him. So that was the one time where I felt like, you know, he would listen to me. Mm. If that makes sense. No, absolutely. I mean, wow. Like I said, um, it was your control. You know what I mean? That was yeah. a part of your life that you could control and your life, you know, and like for me, the same thing, wrestling, wrestling was life for me. Um, we traveled all over in a club team, you know, going, I went to California, Oklahoma, we went all over the place for wrestling. And, uh, that was one of the things that I could control because you're on the map by yourself. And for whatever reason, I I shared this on another podcast. Um, I remember one time my dad got mad at me because I didn't have my shirt tucked in. Because you have to have your shirt tucked in, right? Well, he tore my shirt off of me. I mean, just tore it. Told me, you look like a little girl. He, he ripped it. It's a brand new shirt. It's kind of big. He was the uh, Colorado Buffaloes when they won the national championship against Notre Dame in 19, I think it was like 1990 or something like that. Anyhow, long story short, uh, he tore that shirt. So in a rebellious manner, I was wrestling, you know, city championships against another kid who was really good. I was up on him on points smoking him no way I could lose and I laid down and I let him beat me and I remember staring at my dad like yeah I'm in control you know what I mean that's a good story yeah it it was pretty pretty crazy dude that's a moment yeah Yeah. oh yeah exactly and that's a moment yeah and that's when I decided that I had control you know what I mean in that aspect yeah you know but uh, no, I have a, I have a, yeah, I have a similar story with baseball. I would, uh, I was a catcher, uh-huh. and um, 
there was multiple times when we were up by a lot of runs and I would tell the batters what pitch is coming. Mm. Loud enough for my dad to hear it. I would tell him what pitch was coming and he, there was nothing he could do about it. So, yeah, I think what you're saying kind of hits home. It was a way for me to say, to step out of my, you know, my being controlled and have a little bit of control. You know, it was, and, and I'm growing and learning, you know, and I'm coming into my, you know, my adolescent years and, you know, my you know, later teen years. And, and I would tell the batters what was coming I would, <laughs> just so they could hit it. So they could make the game, you know, more interesting or whatever the case may be, just because, you know, he didn't, he didn't want me to do that. And I did it and he knew I was doing it mm-hmm. and he couldn't stop me. And I think that was, yeah. So very similar story. Do you think that was the start of a of a rebellious root in your life? Like no, growing up. No, I was never. No, I was never really like I didn't sneak out. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't. <clears throat> I didn't skip class. I was, you know, I was always doing what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just I didn't like him. You know, he always had his thumb on me. He always had. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. And then. It was just my way, just same as you. You know, you laid down on the mat. It was just my way of kind of saying, you know, I, I can do this without you. Mm. We, and we can still win, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, that totally makes sense. I mean, that's 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 such a great picture you painted there, you know what I mean, of what your father and you had experienced together, you know what I mean? Um now, looking back at that relationship, I wanted to ask you, Mike, what would you share to your children that your father had taught you? Oh, that's easy. Um, work ethic. Work ethic. Hmm. Just yeah, that. nothing is, nothing's free. Mm-hmm. Nothing's free. Um, I think, I think work ethic and, you know, if, if you say, if you say you're going to do something, do it. Mm-hmm. If you agree, if you agree to be a part of something, or you agree, you know, to help somebody, whatever the case may be, if you say yes, follow through. Mm. Hmm. Yes, let your yeses be yeses and your noes be noes. Exactly. I think if right. uh, I think more people should actually listen to that and abide by it. I mean, how many times do you have people tell you, yeah, 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 and then they ghost you. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah. it leaves me wondering, like, what the hell's wrong with this person? Did they have, you know, at least tell me to my face, you know, what the hell's wrong? It's not, what am I going to do, choke you through the phone? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's it's just, it, it kind of baffles me sometimes when it's easier for people to just run away. And I think that's just the culture we're in because it's so easy to just block somebody on the phone. You know, back in the day, you couldn't yeah. do that stuff. You know, you would have to either face that person, <laughs> you know what I mean, or whatever. But I think this... Sure whole um way we've gone with uh all this technology and everything it's gotten easier for people to not be able to really reach connection you know what i mean they can and they can't you know it's their their, their choice i guess is what i'm trying to say well you don't have to be you don't have to be true you can be whoever you want to be mm. behind the screen you don't there's no you know there's no accountability yep for the things you say the things you do you know the there's no accountability anymore. You can just 
be whatever you want. And you can't, it's hard. You know, I see my kids going through it. I see my kids on, you know, Instagram or, you know, whatever. You can be whoever you want. You can make up a persona. You can, but there's no, when you post something or when I read a post, even on Facebook, mm-hmm. um, when you read something, you can't tell in inflection. You can't tell tone of voice. You can't tell, you know, emphasis on certain words. You can't read that. So it's, you lose a lot of the meaning, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you lose a lot of meaning when you communicate via social media, whatever the case may be, whether you're, you know, wishing somebody a happy birthday or, or trying to comfort somebody in a time of need. I think the, the human interaction, I think, is huge. And we had that growing up, right? I, we didn't have, so I didn't have a cell phone until I was, you know, 30-something years old. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it was always, and we didn't have Google Maps. It was Thomas Guy, but, you know, it, it's, with all this social media, you can just, you can say whatever you want and there's no repercussions. Whereas before it was a face-to-face conversation and you had to be held accountable for the things that you said and the things that you did. And I think we've lost a little bit of that. Absolutely. It's, it's definitely made our culture so detached from reality. You know what I mean? (laughs) One of the, uh, one story I wanted to share with you is I had this line daddy. Okay. And he, he became my, you know, GF and everything else, you know, and I pushed cruise for him and, uh, one of the things he always says is, you know, it's when you go to a bar and you got somebody mother effing you to your face, right? It's a mm-hmm. different story. You can forgive that because they're drunk. But at seven o'clock in the morning and they're doing the same thing, those are fighting words. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's sure. kind of how everything's changed. You know what I mean? It's different when you're up against that person when you're in their face and you know it takes a lot of guts to be able to to face somebody and tell them stuff like that you know what i mean versus on social media where you can do whatever you want to you can say and if they don't like it well bleep you know swipe left or whatever you know what i'm saying so yeah it's definitely a, a detachment of our culture for sure and i think it's affecting our youth as well you know um even but how do we get that back I think, personally, I think we just need to instill it within our, in our kids, within our own families, you know, instill that value. Um, one of the things I starts do is, home. yeah, exactly. Everything starts at home. And one of the things we do is we eat at the table. That's one thing that we did as a child growing up, you know. We hashed out our problems at the table, yelling, screaming, whatever, but we were at the table talking, you know, eating dinner. And you don't see that anymore. You know, you even go to a restaurant and uh, you can count everybody from the father, the wife, to the kids all the way down. Everybody has a phone. No one's talking when they're at a restaurant. I see that all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we've lost it. You know what I mean? That whole round table, that togetherness, that uh, sharing your stories, you know, asking how your day went. I mean, that's what my dad used to do. you know, no matter what, he would always say, well, how did your day go? You know, what happened today? Did you get punched in the face? Did you do good in school? <laughs> you know, what what happened? You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and that's, yeah. how, that's how our dads were back in the day. You know what I mean? That's, you know, you better not tell them you got your butt kicked because you're going to get another one. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, that type of men- mentality, you know. But uh, I wanted to kind of transition into this topic that we wanted to talk about, okay? <clears throat> I, you were telling me that uh, the tragedy that happened in February 2006 
and how that was life altering. Yes. Can you uh, can you elaborate and kind of share with our audience about that? Because I think that's that's something that people need to hear about. And uh, just to give you a quick little backstory. In February 2006, I was working for a contractor in uh, L.A. <clears throat> we were working ungodly amount of hours. I had uh, I kind of had carte blanche to do. I was handed a stack of work and said, "You got till Christmas to get this done." It was a you know a, a very large box filled with with uh, with work orders that needed to be done before Christmas. So. And uh, Christmas came and went. I got it all done, and then subsequently I was given another very large box and said, get this done by March or whatever. Mm -hmm. So off we were, you know, working 32-hour shifts, you know, pretty much nonstop. And I was I was working a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, we were, you know, catching shut-eye in the trucks. And uh, unfortunately, I was involved one night in a, a car accident. Um on the freeway, uh, <laughs> I fell asleep mm -hmm. is what happened. I fell asleep. Um, I remember getting on the freeway. I fell asleep and slouched with no seatbelt on and hit the gas and ended up hitting a car, what they said I was doing, 180 miles an hour. So... Obviously, you know, it was a, it was a fatal accident. The, the person in the other car, you know, did not survive. And it was just a tragedy. It was, you know, it was, uh, I did have a BAC of 0.09. Hmm. So, and I think that right there is something that I got to live with every day. You know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about it. There's not a day that goes by that I don't regret the decision that I made. Um, and I I paid dearly for it. Um, we I ended up um, taking a, a prison sentence of 24 months. I ended up doing 22 months because I went to fire camp and. Uh, some of the hardest work I've ever done in my life, basically fighting fire with no water. Wow. Uh, I got, yeah, I was, you know, uh, during that time, we fought grass fires in Lancaster. You know, we fought the Getty Center fire when, when the J. Paul Getty Center caught on fire that entire mountain. We spent about 14 hours up there mm -hmm. hiking, um, cutting lines. So it's it was the hardest you know, and I, I had I was already a journeyman lineman. I had been topped out a little over five years at the time. Mm -hmm. So I was already pushing a crew, and then that happened, and it was it was devastating. It, it was one of the hardest things. It was a kind of a long court process, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, um, I ended up, you know, being sentenced, and I had a date to turn myself in, and I had to say goodbye to my kids. I remember I put them in the bathtub. And my daughter was eight at the time, and I gave her my cell phone. And I, I told her to keep, you know, here, you can keep this. And I had left some messages on there for her. So once she figured out how to use it, she could read them. But it was, uh, I had to say bye to them, and off I went to, you know, serve my time. It was terrible. Wow. <laughs> and how did that really, like, like, what are some of the things that, 
that incarceration, how did it affect your family as far as like its dynamic? Um, how many kids did you have at the time? You know what I mean? And you know, how did that affect everybody? Yeah. So my oldest son, mm-hmm. um, he was living in Oklahoma at the time he was going to school. So he didn't really, you know, he didn't really, he wasn't really affected. I would say by it. I mean, he knew about it, but he was kind of already doing his own thing. Mm -hmm. And my two kids, they were eight and five. My, my daughter was eight. My son was five and he hadn't even, he might've been four. I don't think he, he turned five yet. He was uh, getting ready to start school that year. And I, I was going to miss that his first day of school. And I think they were young enough, you know, to to not. I mean, kids are resilient, right? They, yeah. The amount of resilience that I see in the kids nowadays is just—it's unbelievable. These these kids, they can bounce back, and you know, thank God, mom was strong, and mom stood by me the whole time. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, she we we kind of broke it to them easy. I was gone for a little bit before they kind of realized what was happening, and then. You know, it was just, it was just a tough time. It was just, it was a sad, it was a sad time in, in, in the lawyer household for sure. Um, my brother, um, who was also in the trade, both my brothers who were also in the trade, they, they were a big help. They were a huge help taking care of, you know, moving the trailer and, and, you know, getting it back to storage and, you know, taking care of the house and cutting the grass and stuff like that. They they, uh, they really helped out. They really stepped up and helped out. So just if it wasn't for family, I mean it would have been it would have been really tough. We my wife didn't work. Um, she was a stay at home mom. Um, after this was all said and done, we ended up losing everything but the house. Hmm. I, we basically had to start over from scratch, and by the grace of God, we were able to keep our home and, but everything else went away. Hmm. And I wanted to ask you, Mike, like what was your thought process during that? I had a, I, I want to read you a quote. Okay. We had a, a past guest on here. He's world famous. His name's Dr. Billy Allsbrooks. He's a motivational speaker and stuff like that, you know? And um, one of the things he said was your thinking is a factory of life. What product are you producing? How was your thinking during that time? Was it, I mean, obviously, I mean, I mean, you're a human being, so it's probably very negative, you know what I mean? And, and self-loathing and all these other things, you know what I mean? Like, can you explain that? Like, what was going on in your thought process? Yeah. Uh, so, okay, I did make sure we bought our house at a good time. Mm-hmm. We were able to refinance um, before this happened. I had some people in the, you know, the loan industry that were friends and family. So they were, that we were able to refinance and pull some money out, some equity that my wife, you know, it was going to be ramen and saltines, but she, she was going to be okay. And, um, I think integrity, I think if I'm integrity, you know, it was, it was a time of self-reflection for me. I never thought that it was the end. I knew that, you know, with the help of family that we, I was going to get through it. I was bound and determined to fix it. Mm -hmm. I I was not, I wasn't going to let it, you know, define me. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So no, there was no, there was no self-loathing. There was a little bit of self-hatred. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there was a little bit of, you know, name calling, like personal name calling to myself, like, you know, mm-hmm. but it, it, there was never a time when I just thought this was over. This was it. I was always hopeful for fixing it. I was always hopeful for, you know, making it right, mm-hmm. you know, paying, paying my dues and getting back and, and being better than it was before. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to see how, like, with, with people, you know, normal, you know what I mean, grief is a big thing, you know, and it's good to see that you didn't allow that grief to hold you down. You yeah. know? Well, there was definitely grief. There was mm-hmm. definitely, I mean, there was a time that, like, for months it was hard to sleep. Mm-hmm. It was it was hard. I, I you know, it was hard to to look at myself, you know, yeah. in the mirror, brushing my teeth or whatever. It was just mm-hmm. there was just a lot. Of, you know, there was a dumb, a, a very bad choice that I made. You know, a mistake that I that I will live with for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And you know that I that I I'm not ashamed to talk about it because. Mm-hmm. It was something that was the most difficult thing I think anybody could go through is surviving what should have been a fatal accident for me. I wasn't even wearing a seatbelt, and that car saved my life. Um, God saved my life, and I don't want to let him down. I don't want to make it for naught. So I made a choice. You know, sometime after, like about a year, I think, is what it took for me to, to finally be at peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made a choice just to not let it be for naught, not let it be in vain. Just I wanted to do whatever I could to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, very admirable of you to to do that, you know, to overcome. You know, that's, that's overcoming, you know what I mean? And that's... That's something that everybody wants to hear about, you know what I mean? Because, like you said, you didn't allow this yeah. to define you. And, yeah, you had grief over it. Yeah, you sounds like you suffered from survivors, you know what I mean? Remorse and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Um, how did, okay, so you mentioned God, right, Mike? During that time, did you find yourself seeking God in those hard moments? And how did that work out? You know like, at times, yes. I mean, prison is, <laughs> it took that. It took me, uh-huh. you know, it was, it was almost two years before I actually, before the date came where I had to turn myself in. Um, so it, it took me that long to finally seek, you know, the Lord or, mm-hmm. or God or Jesus or whatever. I, I, when I got there, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what it was going to be like. I had heard stories, but you know, nothing will prepare you for, for what it is. You lose, you lose all freedom, mm-hmm. all of it. You lose all dignity, self-respect. Might as well just throw it out the window. It's, uh, it's not a pleasant place. You know, there is, uh, what did surprise me was there is genuinely good people. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, like myself that made bad decisions. And it's some of the most talented people, mm-hmm. some of the most talented individuals I've ever met 
were, were there. I mean, guys that could draw portraits and make something out of nothing and, you know, build electronic. These guys, yeah, they got a lot of time on their hands. <clears throat> and I think, I think when I, once I, once I saw what was happening mm-hmm. in there, once I realized that this was not the best place to be, I, I think I, I think I was finally at peace enough and comfortable with myself to privately, you know, pray and seek God and truly ask for forgiveness and just put everything in in His hands. I guess mm-hmm. if, if that makes sense. Um, it wasn't in a group setting. I didn't. I didn't. You know, attend. You know, the services there with with a group setting. It was more private for me. Mm-hmm. But I definitely did. Um, you know, seek the words in red, if you will. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, and just such a, a moment like that is just so humbling. I mean, I, you know, I, I did some time in, uh, towers and tent city in uh, Maricopa County. And, uh, one of the things mm-hmm. that I always remember is I would look out the, the little window that we had or wherever, you know, wherever we're at. And I would think to myself, what a wasted life. You know what I mean? How, and then when you see, like you said, you see all these other people in there and there's some good people in there. You know what I mean? That, like you said, you know, just got crossed, you know what I mean? Wrong place, wrong time. Uh, one of the guys I was in uh, jail with was with his stepdad and they were playing Russian roulette, messing around with a gun while it was loaded, and he turned his dad's head into a canoe, 357 Magnum. And he was in there. He had just turned 18. And it it was just, you could just see the the total fear in his eyes. You know, we were on lockdown in uh, Towers Jail because they were having race riots, you know. And in our little pod, you know, he was just always freaked out because, you know, he was a young guy. He was only 18 years old. You know, he didn't know what the heck was going yeah. on or what and what he got himself into. And it was just sad to see all those things, you know, because you, you pick up on that. You know, I don't know what it is, but you can you can pick up on what people are going through. You know what I mean? When they're being real, you know. And um, yeah, I just remember uh, some of those moments like that. You know what I mean? But I, I like you, I, I read the Bible from cover to cover, like two or three times while I was there, you know what I mean? And I didn't go to a, a you know, a, a, a setting where you're going to jail or, you know what I mean, like a church setting or nothing like that. It was just, it was just very personal. And I think during those times, that's when God started really trying to get a hold of me. You know what I mean? He started trying to really say, hey, man, you're going the wrong way, you know? Um, I, I, <clears throat> I agree with you 100%. I was raised um, growing up. My family was very religious. My grandma talks to God every day. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I was brought up in a Pentecostal church. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, speaking in tongues and dancing in aisles and, you know, confessing to, to everybody, um, you know, with, with as the Holy Spirit would fill these people, they would, you know, profess their whatever was coming, you know, whatever was being said to them. Mm-hmm. was how they felt, you know, uh, get up and testify, you know, in front of everybody. And that was never, it didn't, I mean, it was, it was a little 
shocking, like, you know, mm-hmm. being young and seeing this. But uh, for me, it was more personal. For, like you said, it was more of a finding a personal relationship on my own time, on my own terms, coming to the realization that, that I'm not. I'm not Superman. Mm-hmm. I'm not unbreakable. You know, I'm not the be-all, end-all. Um, and that I, I do make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, I'm probably going to make more. Um, I know I'm going to make more. But it, being able to, to own, mm-hmm. take personal ownership in your mistakes and, and learn from them and not just, not just learn on, a, you know, just you alone, but share, like, you know, in, with your family, with your children. I, I messed up. I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Here's what happened, and here's what I plan to do next time, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that it was just a moment. It was almost like an aha moment about I'm about 14 months in. It was a, just an aha come to Jesus moment. Like, okay, I get it. Um not I am just realizing that I was I'm human and to, and we err we make mistakes mm-hmm. but it's how we it's how we progress after that and how we instill those lessons not just in ourselves but in 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 my children and, and share it with my wife and you know mm-hmm. te- teach them it never really hit me, you know, learn from other people's mistakes. My dad used to tell me that all the time. You know, look at well, look what your uncle did, right? Like, yeah. you got to learn from other people's yeah. mistakes. But it never hit me until that moment. It was a truly an aha moment. Mm-hmm. And it was reading the Bible. It was while I was reading, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, and, it, and it's crazy, too, because, like, I, mean, I agree with you 100%. Um, for me, it didn't really set in either (laughs) i mean i still had a life of rebellion even after that you know what i mean um i still was drinking i still was partying i you know even after i became you know a born-again believer and everything else you know the only difference that happened with me is that i had this um air about me like kind of like holier than thou you know what i mean like oh i'm a a christian what are you you know what i mean and right it wasn't until all this stuff started happening in my life where God started really working on me to where I'm like, why, why am I out here? Why am I away from my family? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? You know what I mean? And all these different choices I make, you know what I mean? And that, that was my aha moment is it's your choice. You know, God didn't do this to you. It's your choice. You had a choice to do right or wrong. You know, choose life or death. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, once you actually come to that realization that it's your choice <clears throat> and you stop blaming people, that was my aha moment. I was just like, wow, you know, this is all on me. It's always been on me, you know? And um, that, yeah. that, that helped me with a lot of the obstacles that I had to face. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100% I understand. And, you know, I've... This, this isn't mine. I read this somewhere, but it is 100% true. You cannot change behavior mm-hmm. by simply changing behavior. We have to change the context, hmm. whether that be the people you surround yourself with, 
the the friends you keep, um, the behavior, you know, the the narrative that you place on yourself or the daily narrative that you do, whether it's just changing a, a morning routine mm-hmm. or, you know, they say it takes seven days to create a habit. Well, for seven days, get up and go to the gym or get up and go walk around the block seven days in a row or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think for, for me, those words really hit. Mm-hmm. Hmm, that was a great quote. Who, uh, where'd you get that from? That, that was actually really good. I like that. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't remember where I got it from, uh-huh. but, it, but it resonates, you know what I mean? It, uh, it really hits home, you know, um, my old man used to always tell me, you know, show me your friends and I'll tell you who you are. This is true. You know, and it, you're absolutely true when you hit that, you know what I mean? Uh, I think Jim Rome talks about, um, who you surround yourself with, you know, if you're, you know, if you got four millionaire friends and you, you're the fifth one who hangs out with them, well, guess what? You're going to be the fifth millionaire and stuff like that. You know what I mean? I think he's the one that said that. But uh, anyhow, long story short, it's absolutely true. You know, who you hang with, you're going to be like that person. <clears throat> you choose to hang around with successful people that are doing right things, um, then you're going to be successful. You know, I always thought it was kind of funny just being on the right away where these young guys were taking marriage advice from these guys who – had three or four divorces. Kids were estranged from them. And I think to myself, why the hell would you want to take advice from somebody? That's like me trying to take advice from somebody who's had, you know, six or seven bankruptcies, and I'm going to take money advice from them. Why? <laughs> right. You know, n- it never made sense to me, you know. <laughs> so, you know, definitely, you know, watch who you hang around with, right? Um, um, I wanted to ask you, how did coming out of prison – Mike, how did that affect your parenting style? Like, so okay, um, like I like I talked about earlier, I used to think that I was untouchable. Mm-hmm. I was I was young, you know. I was I was a uh, fairly good at what I did. I was I made foreman. Um, I was I was good at leading a, a small team. Um, I was good at making those decisions. Everything at work, everything work-related, I made really good decisions. But at home, mm. I would, I didn't hold, I, I, there was no gratitude. Um, everything was, for me, was taken for granted, whether that was the love my children had for me, the love my wife had for me, the love, you know, my mom, my brothers, my dad, it was all taken for granted. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think... Um, upon coming home, I immediately went to work to try to obviously make up for lost time to try to make up for, you know, the 22 months that I missed. Mm -hmm. But I think gratitude is my parenting style leaned more towards a, a sense of trying to teach my children to be grateful not for material things, not for material possessions, but to be grateful for things like freedom, mm-hmm. um, sunshine, friendship, family, love, that kind of stuff. Just mm-hmm. to be thankful uh, and not, you know, giving them chores, giving them structure, holding them account- accountable. I think I never did that. It was always, you know, 
yeah, I'll pay somebody to do that, or I'll, I'll hire a, a cleaning lady to clean, whatever. I'll, we'll hire a gardener. But I, it's not about that. It's it's having that, you know, and, and I, I kind of went back to how my dad raised me. It was if there was weeds to pick in the backyard, we didn't hire a gardener to do it. I went out there and did and it. Did it. Mm-hmm. I went out there and did it. If there was, you know, a fence that needed repair, I went out there and did it. And I think I, I – Every time there was a project to do around the house, whether it was, oh, we did have to fix the fence, it, the wind blew it over, I always involved the kids in it mm-hmm. just so they can, if there was breaks when my daughter got her first car, you know, I helped, she helped do the brakes mm-hmm. and she got dirty. And, and I, so I think just being, trying to teach them to be grateful mm-hmm. for the, the mundane, everyday things and not just take things for granted. I think that was the biggest thing that, that I brought home mm-hmm. was that gratitude, right? The gratitude. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And I could totally see that, you know, just coming from being in incarceration and stuff like that. I mean, one of the things that I heard you say was sunshine. I mean, how many times do we take that for granted? And people don't understand that uh-huh. when you're incarcerated, you don't really see the sun. You know what I mean? They kind of disorient. Well, at least the jail I was at, you know, it kind of disorientated you from, you know, from time. You know what I mean? They didn't really let you know exactly what time it was because you never really saw the sun. You know what I mean? Yeah, and if you do, it's it's when they tell you exactly. you can go see the sun. Yes. You don't get to just, hey, I'm going to go outside for a minute. You can't do that. And I think, I think that was, you know, like I said, about 12 or 14 months in, I finally realized that I was not in charge. I was not in control. I, I had I had zero choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, the choice I had was whether I was going to drink, you know, make instant coffee or if I was going to go to sleep when the lights went out or turn the light on and read. Like, that, that was – my choices were limited to my personal space. Mm-hmm. And, and it, I think I – that really that hit the hardest and I wanted to make sure that you know my children were equipped with the tools to recognize when they they need to show gratitude or when they they might have to step outside of their comfort zone to express gratitude if somebody is showing them a new way or even just trying to express kindness or friendship Mm. they need to be grateful for that and learn to recognize it, I think. Yeah, I think that's a big point is uh, that recognition. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, we live in a world right now where when someone's nice to you, immediately you're thinking, okay, well, why are they being nice to me? What's, what, what do they want? What, what what's do they their want? agenda? Exactly. You yeah. know, and I think that's how we've been conditioned as a culture. You know, why are they being really nice? You know, and there's really genuine people out there. I mean, I learned that firsthand when we, uh, I used to go to Missouri a lot and, uh, at a, at a farm out there, I have a, a really close friend of mine, he owns 500 acres and, you know, we would, we shared this mountain and stuff like that. And, uh, those are some of the nicest people I've ever met, dude. They didn't lock their doors when they left. They would go on vacation for like two, three weeks. They would not lock the front door just in case the oh, neighbor wow. needed to go and get some sugar or something. They left the keys in the car. They thought I was weird, dude, because here I am. I'm showing up. I'm locking my doors. You can hear the beep, beep. You know what I mean? 
And they thought I was completely weird. They're like, well, we're not going to steal. And in fact, they got kind of offended. They're like, we're not going to steal from you. We don't steal. <laughs> like, it's just a habit, yeah. dude. I live in, you know, Albuquerque, New Mexico, bro. Your car, you don't lock it. It's gone within two minutes. You know what I mean? And that's, that's fact, you know? So it was kind of interesting to see how people lived in different parts of the country. And there is still that instilled in people, you know what I mean? Where they're just genuine, nice people. You know, um, it's hard to find. It is. And you definitely got to be, you know, wise as serpent and gentle as doves. Absolutely. You know, I think uh, DMX said it best. I don't know if you listen to DMX rap or whatever, but uh, one of the they had a, a big old deal on him where they're interviewing him. And he's like talking about trust. And he's like, OK, if you have a snake, trust that it's going to bite you. But trust if your friend's a thief. Know that he's going to steal from you, but trust that. You know what I mean? You're not going to change him. Just just be wise about that. Don't leave your stuff unlocked around the dude. You're not going to change him. Yep. You, you know what I mean? But just be aware. Yep. <clears throat> There's a the parable or the fable of that was, is I think it's the scorpion and the frog, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The scorpion tells the frog, can you, I need to get to the other side of this creek. Can you take me there? And the frog says, no, you're a scorpion. You're going to sting me. And the scorpion says, I really need to get to the other side. I will not sting you. You know, if I sting you, we're going to drown. We'll both drown. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, the, the frog starts, says, he finally agrees and takes, takes him and they get halfway across. And the scorpion stings him. And as the frog is, you know, dying, he says, why'd you do that? He, the scorpion says, because I'm a scorpion. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and he, so you're right. It just goes hand in, yeah, it's, it's uh, we just got to learn to, like you said, recognize mm-hmm. you know, when when genuine. I, I believe, and, and I, my wife gets on me all the time for saying this, but I truly believe in the genuine goodness of people. Mm-hmm. And I, I tend to offer trust immediately until you give me a reason not to. Um, and I I I believe that that most people are you know a vast majority of the people are just genuinely good people. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times it's misguided based on things or they're, you know, they're misinterpreted or, or maybe they're just not understood. And I, I think doing time, you know, on, on a level at, at one point on a level four yard with hardcore criminals was, mm-hmm. you know, an eye opener to realize that, it, it, it could be anybody. Yeah. It, it's not, it could be anybody. You know, we're, we all, you know, are, have the potential to be put in a situation where we make a bad choice. Mm-hmm. And it's a detrimental choice to the, that, that'll affect the outcome of the rest of our lives. And, and it's, it's how we respond in those situations. It's how we react. We can't, we can't choose the things that happen around us. We can't control the decisions that people make that directly affect us. What we can choose is how we react yes. to those situations. And that we always have that choice, how we react. And I think, I think that's, you know, that's one of the biggest takeaways is how we react to situations that might not be, you know, in our best interest that we sometimes find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. And just the choices that we make in response to those 
to those moments is is what defines us is what identifies our character as human beings as individuals mm-hmm. and that's that's just a big thing with me and i try to teach that mm-hmm. to, to my children we talk about it all the time you know content of character and reactions to things that, that occur mm-hmm. how you react yeah you hit the note right in the head the only thing we can control is ourselves and how we respond um i think yeah. a lot of that is ego too you know um i think a lot of people have ego and they don't die to it and it gets the better of them and next thing you know you're operating in pride you know um I got stabbed when I was 14 years old by a 21-year-old, okay? Oh and he, uh, he sent me a letter. He was in prison later on, and I'd already went through the military and stuff like that and came back. And that whole decision he made there totally changed the transition of my life, okay? I mean, I wanted to go to school. I wanted to wrestle. I wanted to go to Boulder, you know, Colorado Buffalo, stuff like that. And that changed. Uh, next thing you know, I'm going to the military because – for lack of better words, I hated people. I didn't trust people. I wanted to be able to defend myself, so I wanted to go to the military and learn how to kill people. You know, I mean, that was my thinking as a child. You know, that's a child's thinking. Um, mm-hmm. so, I, so I went and I did all that. And later on in life, he wrote me a letter. He was in prison again. He had shot some guy in the face. Guy lived, but, you know, he got incarcerated again. And uh, he wrote me a letter, and one of my friends had just gone out of prison. And uh, he, he's like, hey, man, I have this letter for you. You know, I want to give it to you. I've been holding on to it. So I read it, and he talked about how during that moment it had shaped everything in his life for the for the worse, you know, and how he could, if he could go back, he would change it, and he didn't uh, blame me for not uh, forgiving him, you know, and he just wanted to say he was sorry and uh, that it was his ego, you know. He felt very jaded that a 14-year-old, you know, I used to, wrestle and box okay um one of our our my wrestling coach was actually a professional boxer who fought sugar ray leonard and stuff like that so he taught us how to box and stuff and uh he uh so we're pretty tough and needless to say i got in a fight with this kid i defended myself and he wasn't a kid he was a man and uh he felt very jaded because of what had happened you know and he stabbed me you know, he let his pride and his ego get in the way because he felt ashamed. And in that moment, he stabbed me, almost killed me. And it changed the whole course Goodness. of his history of his life and my life. You know, because of that decision right there. You know, and that just goes to show what you're talking about. You know, <laughs> we can't control what other people do, but there's always an outcome. You know, it's that ripple effect. Yeah, you know? and uh, I kind of wanted to transition because you had talked a little bit about, you know, um, prison and stuff like that. I want to move back to how did your record? Because I know a lot of linemen, you know, my, myself included, and a couple other friends I know. They actually, you know, spent a lot of time—14 years, I think—in the Texas state prison system. And uh, he's a he's a GF over in Texas right now. But uh, how did that record affect your ability to provide for your family? So that's, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, when I did, you know, when I did get home, mm-hmm. there was, uh, that I needed to do, you know, court wise, system wise, um, 
you know, parole and, and, you know, I had a parole officer that would come to the house and, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was unsupervised. So I got to do what I needed to do. I had to get permission to, to get a job. Mm-hmm. Basically they had to, they had to approve it. And so it took, it took about three months to get, I had to get my class A driver's license back. Um, you know, so that, that took a while. Mm-hmm. And then when I did finally, you know, I didn't even have, I didn't have a commercial driver's license. I was able to get my regular driver's license back. That took a, you know, a month or so. And I had to redo all the testing and everything. And then once I got that, obviously most of the calls in California for a commercial driver, Yeah, you got to be able to drive, you know, a digger or a bucket or haul a trailer. And I didn't have that. So I was limited to what I could take. And when I did get the job, obviously you, you got to fill out the new hire paperwork and you got to, that question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And that was time I ever, I had, I, I had to say yes. I had never been in trouble for anything. Mm-hmm. And that, that checking that box, and then I had to disclose, of course, I get the questions, okay, now what is this? And they, they now they want to do a little bit of a thorough, you know, check. And, and, and not everybody knew on the job site. I, uh, I went to work for, for a, a contractor that worked mostly in substations. Mm-hmm. And at the time we were working for uh, the Department of Water and Power. It's a 500 yard and you have to pass a background to get in there. Mm-hmm. And so I was there probably a month. I had to work extremely hard to, I guess, to make up for the character flaw that, that I felt mm-hmm. was, given to me, you know, impression wise, first impression wise. Oh, this guy, you know, he's been in prison, whatever. Yeah. It's probably yeah. just going to be a pile. And, and so I had to, it was a conscious effort to make sure I didn't offend anybody to make sure I said, please. And thank you. And excuse me. And little things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, just to be polite, to be genuine and to work, you know, work as safe as I could, as quickly as I could, you know, and, and it didn't take long. It was, couple months there that the background check finally caught up with me and I had an opportunity to uh to move up and to do a little job close to my house it was just a a, I think it was a breaker 69 kb breaker change out in a little substation here off the freeway in corona and I jumped at the opportunity they asked me about two months in they asked me if I could do this job I had no idea how to do that job um, never done 60 KV breaker changeouts, but they were going to give me a, you know, a, an inside wireman, a, another lineman and a grunt. And we, I think we had five breakers to change out. And I said, yeah, let's go. I, I can do it. You know, that whole, I can do it. And, and then that was it. I was, I was sucked in after that. And, you know, I made, I was a foreman for them. And then I was a GF for, for this contractor. And I was there seven years. Uh, it was the first job I took when I got out. I was able to get my CDL back eventually. And I could have, you know, they had me going everywhere from Calexico, you know, or, or El Centro, mm-hmm. which is on the border there, east of San Diego on the border, Mexican border, all the way to, to San Francisco. Wow. San Mateo, Hayward, wow. Martinez, you know, um, 
everywhere and everywhere in between the Central Valley, Bakersfield, um, Huron, you know, yeah. everywhere. San Luis Obispo, I was all over the state for the next seven years. And, you know, I, I always had to work. I always felt like, at least, you know, for the first few years, I felt like at, at any moment the rug could be pulled out underneath me, and I didn't want that to happen. And mm-hmm. so I, I worked really hard to to build my reputation because that's all we got as linemen, right? We, yeah. we all know this. We, yeah. It's all we got is our reputation. You're, you know, when when you take a call or when when somebody knows you're coming to the yard, somebody there knows you, somebody there knows somebody that knows you, your reputation gets there before you even set foot on that yard. Mm-hmm. And I had to work really hard to, to make sure I was making good decisions and, and doing the right thing. And I, I, I was, I was lucky. Yeah. I was fortunate. I was lucky to, to have that, that contractor that gave me the opportunity, knowing my story and, uh, giving me the chance. No, no, for sure. Um, and you're absolutely right. Your tools will, you know, your reputation will get there before your tools do. That's one of the sayings they always yeah. tell us, you know. And uh, with that being said, I wanted to ask you this last question, brother. We're running out of time here. Um, looking back, what would you have done differently? And what advice can you give to young men? Uh Okay, I'll tell you a story. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question. If you were given $84,600 at the beginning of every day and you were told to spend those that $84,600 every single day because at the end of the day it all went away, mm-hmm. but the following day you got another $84,600, would you spend that? you would work your butt off to spend that $84,600 every day, right? Cause you know, it's coming the next day and you, it doesn't carry over. You can't keep it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You'd work, you'd work hard. So that's how many seconds we get in a day. We get 84,600 seconds every day. Mm-hmm. We don't get to keep them. We don't get them back, but they start over every day. Mm-hmm. So if we look at that and I, and, and it goes, it's just, being grateful, mm-hmm. um, gratitude, not just appreciating what we do have, appreciating what, you know, God has given us or what, you know, freedoms that we have, family mm-hmm. that we have, friendships that we have, the little things, right? Like not, not taking your family for granted, not taking time to, to recognize how special things are around you. Mm-hmm. I think that's the... That's the, that's the one thing I would have done differently is, is not take everything for granted. Mm. And if, and advice that I would give to, to somebody who's, you know, exhibiting any kind of reckless behavior is, is see that reckless behavior is, is a known risk, right? It's a known, we know what we're doing has consequences, potential consequences, and we're well aware of what those consequences might be. Mm -hmm. So I think reckless behavior you know, if, if you're exhibiting that or if you feel like you need to, to do some kind of reckless behavior, I would say talk to somebody. Talk to a, a, a brother, mm-hmm. a sister, a friend, a coworker, you know, your, your, your pole partner, your bucket buddy, whatever it is. Um, talk to them and say, hey, dude, like these are the kind of, this is what I've been thinking or this is what I, these are the thoughts that I have. Because sometimes just, just kind words from a friend can, can go a long way. Just somebody to listen to. 
Mm. or somebody that'll listen to what you have to say, I would say that would be the advice. Just, just talk to somebody. Don't hold it in. Again, I just want to thank my listeners out there. Keep being show up dads and just thank you.